we've got a lot of fucking dumb smart people in this country you know what i mean and a disproportionate number of them worked for hillary clinton in 2016 we have this layer of elites on top of the society that's crumbling in my opinion um but because the folks at the top are insulated from this the disintegration it doesn't matter and one of the things that makes me really sad is that i think a couple decades ago if you were uh smart and savvy and hustled and good with people like there were all of these paths open to you that didn't involve your sat score now if you're just like a good person and hardworking and um have some savvy and people skills uh you may not actually be able to live a sustainable middle class life I remember sitting with Van and learning about his backstory and all that he went through from his uh, family on up. And it's incredible. Um, that guy has an arc you would not believe. Uh, and, and even after he, you know, quote unquote, made it, he had this uh, somewhat fall from grace when he left the White House. And then he he ended up working for Prince, who's like a you know superhero in my mind. <laughs> and, um, so his... Uh, ups and downs are incredible, but really the most incredible things like his uh, genesis, where coming up out of rural Tennessee and, and um, winding up uh, working on the coasts uh, after uh, getting kind of sucked up into the um, like the elite institutions. You talk about something that you've coined and we're going to define here. You coin it dumb, smart people. Um, why don't you define that for what you mean when you say we have a lot of dumb, smart people in this country? We have a, a, a lot of people who uh, succeeded academically, who have a very, very limited sense of how the world functions. Yeah. There's something uh, I said in my book, and I'm just going to crib from and quote from myself. Pause. <laughs> quote the great Andrew Yang. Yes, quote Andrew Yang. Yes, to, to, to quote myself, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I wrote a chapter called Life in the Bubble, uh, and it talks about uh, people who are highly educated, uh, and here's my list of, uh, of things about them uh, that make them a, a little bit less uh, right on in terms of judgment. Um, so people in the bubble think that the world is more orderly than it is. They overplan. They mistake smarts for judgment. They mistake smarts for character. They overvalue credentials, head not heart. They need status and reassurance. They see risk as a bad thing. They optimize for the wrong things. They think in two years, not 20. They need other bubble people around. They get pissed off when others succeed. <laughs> they, 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 think they think their smarts should determine their place in the world. They think ideas supersede action. They get agitated if they're not making clear progress. They're unhappy. They fear being wrong and looking silly. They don't like to sell. They talk themselves out of having guts. They worship the market. They worry too much. Uh, bubble people have their pluses and minuses like anyone else. Um, so that that was my description Damn. of uh, dumb, smart people 
um, shall we say. Uh, yeah. You know, and I read a book by Chris Hayes called, called Twilight of the Elites that actually hit a lot of the same themes um, where we have a set of elites who've been acculturated and trained in certain ways uh, and it makes them excellent at optimizing in certain tasks and terrible at lots of other things. And it also um, breeds the empathy out of you. It, it like gives you this fake empathy <laughs> where you just have to like hand wave and be like, oh, I feel so bad about that problem. Um, but then uh, uh, they're, they're actually uh, put in position where they start taking the problem for granted. So I saw this when I got the Duke. So like I, on paper, I'm, you know, a straight white dude with, from Connecticut and worked on wall street. So there's, there's certain assumptions about that, but I also, I didn't come from a lot of money. So when I got to Duke, I saw these kids that went to the Deerfields and the Roxbury Latins and he's prep school and was very, very intimidated. But a lot of them had the, it was like, it wasn't that they couldn't work hard. It was more of like a sense of entitlement. And I remember like going to study groups of them and they're goofing off. Um, and I was like, man, these kids must be so smart. And then they wouldn't get good grades um, which always pissed me off because it, you know, from my public school in Elmwood, Connecticut, near Hartford, like there was a whole list of kids that would have killed to go to an elite school and, you know, take an econ test and, and try harder on it. But these kids, at the end of the day, you know, they're working now. They're working at the private equity firms and the law schools and going to politics and they're making more money than all of us. And they're the people who are going to be running the country someday. I think that's what you and Van talk about is that that lane not only is that these people are they're called dumb smart people but then they end up being in leadership positions down the road yeah i mean van talks about it where when he showed up to yale law they were like your guys are gonna end up being senators and van's like are you kidding me and then it turns out fast forward 25 years they're some senators. of them are senators so it, it you know that like uh and there's something messed up about the fact that they could say that with such confidence and be right that's really the the uh it's really the problem um i mean we we have this layer of elites on top of the society that's crumbling in my opinion um but because the folks at the top are insulated from this the disintegration it doesn't matter uh and and then there's this uh thrashing around where people are trying to figure out what's going wrong and that's what's going wrong. It's like, well, like your fortunes are not tied to ours. Uh, and so as our lives disintegrate, you're looking around being like, what is the problem? Why are people upset? Like, why is this not working? Um, you know, why aren't you magically getting educated for the jobs of the future, even though we've made that ridiculously out of reach? <laughs> there are, And now, you know, the jobs of the future uh, are few and far between. So there, there are all of these uh disconnects that i think my conversation with van actually um highlights yeah and there, there's these two types of smarts where it's like the one smart is you're smart enough to be a hedge fund analyst on wall street or work at a big law firm and then there's this other type of smart where you can run a successful family car repair shop or run a trucking business or be a hairdresser and kick ass and I think what's been interesting about COVID is like we're learning what's more essential right now. Because <laughs> well, I'd I was rather have our up, trucks run. I, I, when I was growing up, they called it street smarts. You yeah. know, and, and one of the things that makes me really sad is that I think 
a couple decades ago, if you were uh, smart and savvy and hustled and good with people, like you could build a successful restaurant, bar, car repair shop, mm-hmm. uh, you know, flower shop, hardware store, like what have you. Like, you know, there are like a million paths up you could become a you could become a professional salesperson and live a fine life uh and there were all of these paths open to you that didn't involve your sat score frankly right uh and then now that's less and less true where now if you're just like a good person and hardworking and um have some savvy and people skills uh you may not actually be able to live a sustainable middle class life um because that's just the way our economy uh, has evolved. It's just squeezed out more and more opportunities. And so now if you're that uh, upward leaning person, like your best hope is to try and get close to a geyser. It's like, right. ooh, maybe I can somehow <laughs> finagle my way into like uh, Amazon or one of these like giant tech firms. And then from there, if I, you know, like can, can uh, impress people or keep my head down then like then like that's my path to a decent life you know that there was one story i heard that was like the most heartbreaking thing where there was a guy who ran a chain of um like mom and pop grocery stores in new jersey amazon bought whole foods and so then this new jersey uh, grocery store owner was like well we're screwed we're gonna lose to these guys so i now will just use all my earnings to buy Amazon stock as opposed to investing in my grocery store chain. You know, I heard that story and I was like, yeah, that that's actually in a way pretty smart or wise, but uh, we're still maintaining the fiction that you can go out and uh, start your grocery store in your neighborhood and it's going to be fine. Um, even as you're getting squeezed uh, from both ends. So you and I, we've talked about this a lot on the trail and we talked about a lot personally, just, in like individual conversations, we both hate this, right? We hate what it does to our friends. We hate what it does to our world. We hate what it does to the working people around the country. How would you, it's obviously bigger than one solution, but what would you do? What needs to be done to fix this or at least start getting us trending the right direction? Cause we're trending the opposite, right? Like this is getting worse, not better. What would you do to fix it? What I would do is put buying power into the hands of everybody. Uh, and if you look at a town, um, that has a college in it, you see all these small businesses and uh, cute stores and mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, karate studio and like yoga uh, classes and, and all of this stuff. Um, we can make more of our towns look like that. It's just people have buying power because if you have buying power, there are certain things that the tech companies are going to deliver to your door and, uh, you know, there's no stopping it. But there are certain things that you'd want to experience um you know, in your town, like a bakery or whatnot. It's like maybe you just would like like to have fresh baked goods. Uh, and so buying power in our hands actually helps keep the economy uh, closer to home mm-hmm. uh, because those things aren't, aren't going to be economically competitive. They're just going to be competitive in terms of a quality of life. Uh, and so that that's actually the way that we can really rejuvenate opportunities and entrepreneurship for people. Because there are people listening to this right now who have imagined like, oh, maybe I should open a whatever it is, you name it, bed and breakfast, yoga studio, mm-hmm. nonprofit, um, whatever it is. And those things are not realistic for many, many people. 
Um, but they become much more realistic if number one, you have economic security yourself because you're getting some form of income you can rely on. And number two, there's a lot more money flowing around your community. Uh, then all of these things become more possible, particularly if people are willing to pay an extra buck or two because, you know, they like your muffins or they, right. uh, there are certain things that, you know, they, they're willing to just go to in person. Now, the coronavirus obviously complicates this because uh, a lot of the value add to being in person now in like, let's say, a yoga studio has disappeared. Right. Um, and so will that come back? Um, we're, we don't know. And this to me is one of the major problems for entrepreneurship and small businesses over the coming uh, months and years that a lot of those value propositions that mom and pop entrepreneurs rely upon is the fact that your being physically proximate um, is something you want. And if you really don't want that, then a lot of this stuff goes out the window. Um, so that's painful. Uh, but it starts with people having enough money to spend. If you destroy the middle class of a country, guess what? You get rid of all those things that um, serve the middle class. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that there's so you need a middle class to have uh, that kind of opportunities that you want so that it isn't necessary for us all to go uh, apply to work at Amazon. I'm going to shift gears a little bit in that vein, though, talking about reopening the economy. Um, so I think I disagree with you on this, Andrew. So right now you've got L.A. saying close forever, New York saying say close and Florida opening up and different states doing different things. Should we be opening up? Because and, and here's my, my thought is that we were told stay home because we need to flatten the curve. And I think by most objective numbers, the curve is flattening and hospital beds have space now. So what's the downside of reopening right now? Why can't we start um, getting things back to normal before we have irreversible damage to the economy? Uh, I think we should be reopening parts of the economy in the country judiciously based upon what's going on in those communities. Um, the reality is we can't stay indoors and just wait forever for a vaccine that is months and months away. Um, so you have to start making harder choices now. Uh, and that involves which states might be safe to reopen, which parts of the economy might be safe to reopen, which places of work and institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the big missing piece that we really can and must do a much better job on is testing. Um, because then you look up and say, okay, should uh, Arkansas reopen? And then you're like, well, what data points are we relying upon? Mainly hospital admissions. Uh, and then you say, well, is that indicative of what's going on in our communities? To some extent, yes, but mm -hmm. you know what would be a much better indication of what's going on in our communities? People taking tests, uh, you know, seeing uh, people taking uh, antibody tests. Right. So so that to me is something that would be a, an enormous value add, but it, it's going to be time for us to start making difficult uh, policy choices because it's not realistic to just say everyone stay inside until a right. vaccine arrives. Um, and there are real trade-offs where uh, it's true that uh, businesses and, and people, if you have them on the bench for too long, um, we'll lose a lot of uh, jobs and economic productivity. Uh, plus, you know, a lot, a lot of these organizations are doing very important things, not just the essential, but like the things that right. are one step below essential. 
I, I think this is it's very hard trade off between obviously the cost of human life or the cost of people getting sick. Um, which also coronavirus also sucks if you don't die, right? So there's also just like a personal pain um, that comes with getting it. Um, but what do you say? There's this trade-off between opening the economy and, and that pain. What do you say to my grandmother, right, who's terrified to go outside? And um, when people are like, let's open the economy, let's open the economy. Like, how do you, and especially as a leader, how do you navigate that and, and message that in a human way? I think your grandmother is right to be concerned. And I think that if you are part of a vulnerable, high-risk uh, group, then there should be uh, pretty strict measures around uh, potential exposure. And so for your grandma to be concerned is correct. Like my mom is in her 70s and we're very, very concerned about her too. Um, and so she should still be adopting many of the uh, quarantine measures and expect that if she uh, wants to avoid people like that, you know, the local restaurants reopening might not be um, something that she enjoys for a while. Uh, right. There are uh, some other countries have done something which I think is really smart, which is that they they've opened up certain hours for um, senior citizens or people mm -hmm. that are at higher risk where it's like, look. Our place is ordinarily, you know, a little bit crowded or whatever. There are going to be these periods of time where it's just senior citizens. It's going to be less crowded and you don't have to worry about, you know, running into some young, dumb, infectious person who's going to like, you know, <laughs> like, like, like <laughs> run around in there. Um, so I, I think and even then, if I was your grandma, I probably would still skip that place because I'd be like, yeah, I don't trust that senior citizen. Right, right, right. Things. Um, <laughs> but, but, but but that's uh, but that's a reasonable uh, measure. Um, if if you're vulnerable and high risk, uh, you know you should still be operating very similarly to the way you are right now. Yeah, I mean it's tough to say this in hindsight, but yeah, you know, I wish this was happening in a year that wasn't an election year, in the sense that if Trump knew and the administration knew that they had two more years to recover from this, that's an easy recovery story. You lock down as long as you think is needed, and then you can ride out the economic wave that will come inevitably if we open up the economy again. Right now, I just feel so politicized, you know, um, we're not thinking long term. We're not thinking the benefit of you know, people's lives. We're thinking about the benefit of an administration that wants to stay in power. And the Democrats probably would do a similar thing if they were in power, too, sadly. Um, it's the, probably the nature of the game. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but you know, I, I, I think that I think we'd be in a similar spot regardless of the um, the timing of the election in the sense that, you you know, we can't all stay inside uh, until there's a vaccine. Yeah. And regardless of the political backdrop, that would be the case. So we're, we're going to have to start making tougher choices. Um, and the, to me, the path to making better, tougher choices is more testing, more data, right. more information. And that would also bolster confidence so much. It's like one of the big problems we're all having is like, hey, if I go out and I go shopping or, uh, you know, I mean, where I am is not uh, it is not open. So, so it's like, but if I would want to consider going to a restaurant, um, like, how do I know what the heck is going on? Like, I don't, you know, it's like mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and, and this is uh, apples to oranges. But in South Korea, they're literally getting alerts on their phone saying like, hey, there's like a patient like 20 miles behind you that's convert, uh, like confirmed coronavirus. Uh, they even have like general descriptions of the person. <laughs> you know? Like, like it's like <laughs> woman in her thirties. Oh, like, no confirmed. Thanks. 
Um, so, <laughs> you know, so on, on one hand, that's like awfully intrusive and dystopian. Yeah. On the other hand, it would give you more confidence about going right. out because you'd be like, well, it seems like we actually know when someone gets sick and uh, or is infectious or high risk. And they're actually like trying to trace who the person's coming into contact with mm-hmm. um, in a way that here we we have no idea about. So well, you you talk about that with Ian, you know, where you were like the surveillance societies and surveillance countries are already recovering because and this isn't I'm not something you're, you've recommended. But they're recovering because they know what everybody's doing and where they're at and what exactly they're spending their money on and what they're eating and all those things. And it's working for them. Well, the tough thing is we pretty much missed that window. It's like if, oh, you, yeah. tried to, if you tried to do it now, it would be like, you know, it'd be a total fiasco disaster. Yeah. Though we yeah. should still be doing some more data gathering in different ways. Um, yes. So but there was like a, a window of opportunity that we missed. Yeah. Um, like China was the example you and talked about where they're actually recovering. Um, the, South Korea is the best example. I mean, they, yeah. they've, they went hard and uh, they're recovering too. The president's been kind of, and the administration's kind of been ranting on the China aspect of coronavirus. And you've been on record saying you can be angry at China and hold them accountable without being racist towards Chinese Americans. Um, and then Donald's been doing this really interesting thing. He said, there's a lot of angry Chinese Americans. I think he tweeted this out. A lot of angry Chinese Americans, and they should be angry. Um, but then he keeps calling it the Great China Plague. So it's like literally both sides of his mouth. I think you could have a very, and should have, and hopefully have a very strong role to play in this election as a voice of reason, as an Asian American leader. Thoughts on this, or where's your head at around the China virus aspect of coronavirus. Yeah, uh, Asian Americans are angry that Americans are dying uh, and that America's number one in cases and deaths mm-hmm. and that we're all faced with uh, this, uh, this economic catastrophe, this public health catastrophe uh, that has been made significantly worse by terrible leadership. Um, so that's what pisses us off the most um, as human beings and Americans. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like and and it's really important to distinguish between the Chinese government, uh, Chinese people, Chinese Americans and Asian Americans are all very different sets of people. Um, but really, the, the, the fact of the matter is like the genesis of this crisis is at this point, like not front and center for like you know 99 percent of americans like we're worried about our own health our families like uh our mental health uh, our frontline healthcare workers like mm-hmm. our mothers and fathers and grandmas and like all, all that like that's what we care about you know it, it's like uh saber rattling at china like does not make anyone healthier does not get us more tests does not get us better data to make better decisions and not reopen our schools you know it's like anytime he talks about this it's just to distract from their botching the handling of the the crisis it's like you know like yeah like it's their fault it's like the entire world's in this mess like do you think every government's just running around saying like blame them while people die i mean it's really uh you know it's just like it it doesn't speak to what we actually care about right it's, I think it's hard to see. I think in, at least in the history books I was taught to read from, 
American presidents have, we've elected strong leaders, generally speaking, in the president, um, even if you disagree with their policies. And so it's usually the story we've been told is American leadership stepping up in times of crisis. And I feel like we're not doing that right now. And that is the hardest part to watch and frankly, suffer the consequences from, you know, as a person. Oh, oh, we're, yeah. we're doing it. But the leaders are literally like the nurses and the teachers. Yes, yeah, and the yeah, moms. Yeah. I mean, no, it, I mean, it's really heartbreaking. It's like the, you know, and it, it's not uh, obviously, unfortunately, like, you know, it'd be much better to have a, an, an appropriate coordinated federal response um, right. than just leaving it to frontline workers and uh, states to essentially be trying to, to solve this themselves. Yeah. Speaking of leadership and states and cities, um, we won our lawsuit for those of you who care against the New York Board of Elections. Congratulations, Andrew. Um, yes, one in O in lawsuits thus far. <laughs> though they are appealing, so we'll see. They are appealing, but we're going to count. But I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, heck, the federal judge saw it pretty cut and dried, and you know, you objectively uh, eliminating people's right to vote is a legal loser. Uh, you know, it's like that. That's pretty straightforward and common sense. Yeah. And for those of you um, who care about these sort of things, this is teeing up an improbable, shocking run for New York City mayor. Maybe. No comment from Andrew Yang. <laughs> oh, I find that funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll see. TVD. I will say. I've seen the polls. And you can't see my shit-eating grin, but uh, I have a shit-eating grin after looking at polls. So, you know, it's an interesting option. Uh, you know, I'll say I'm focused on helping Joe win right now. I mean, that's yeah. job one. And same here. I'm, I'm focused on that and making snide comments about the mayor race. Let's put it that way. Um, all right. So, well, so just on the, the topic of the New York race, yeah. there's one major variable uh, for whoever the next mayor is going to be, and that's the level of uh, federal aid New York City yeah. gets. I mean, they're going to have a hole in their budget of billions, tens of billions of dollars over time. I think it's $8 billion right now. Um, and so if the city of New York is going to have a chance at bouncing back, um, then they're going to need lots of federal help. And that's appropriate because they pay a ton in uh, in taxes and they're a huge economic driver. And it's the right thing to do. Right. Um I feel like we can do a whole episode on your political future, and I'd love to do it. But now's not the time. Um, so tune in to Yang Speaks. You never know. We'll drop all of Yang's political aspirations, which I will tell you, as someone who hangs out with Andrew a lot, they are, you're indifferent about a lot of politics, Andrew. You just want to solve problems. It's usually a good way to put it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, guys. Uh, so, thank, so tune in. We've got Van Jones today. Van. I'm sorry I ever doubted you or ever hated on you before. This episode has changed the way I looked at you. Andrew was pretty indifferent, and now he loves you or maybe always has loved you. But um, for those of you who didn't know Van Jones, you will look at him different after this episode. Van Jones joins Yang Speaks. Van, how are you doing, brother? Uh, man. You are... Uh, maybe the OG charter member of the Yang Gang. Uh, maybe among people who 
are on TV for a living, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> though I know you do a lot of other things, so but, it's not like you're on TV for a living. But no, I'm on TV for for a living, among other things. And yeah, it, it was it was so nuts because <clears throat> I think part of what, what what happened when you came on the scene is that um, some of us were really looking not toward DC for answers, but we're looking you know more toward Silicon Valley and other places for answers. And there, you know. The math was obvious, you know, the destruction of jobs, robots, all that sort of stuff. Massive conversation on the West Coast where I live half the time. And then in D.C., you know, the question was, you know, do you hate immigrants or billionaires? And so, you know, you have this completely stupid conversation happening in D.C. and this really bright conversation happening um, on the West Coast. And then suddenly, you know, you bridge the gap. And I was jumping up and down so happy about it. And people were like, you be what? UB40? Isn't that a, a, a reggae group? Like, what do you No, UBI. Anyway, so just be aware that, um, you know, I, I was looking for you before you showed up, and I sure was glad when you did. Well, thank you, Van. I know you took a lot of heat for it from some of your colleagues at CNN where they were like, man, what the heck is going on? Like there was like a running joke being yeah. like, why, why are you standing so hard for this young guy? He's got no shot. Like, what are you doing, man? I mean, listen, I, I told you last time I saw you a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, uh, you don't have to get, get on anybody else's train. You know, this is the train that, that, that you know, the Pope just came out. <laughs> I mean, once the Pope, <laughs> once the Pope is coming out for your ideas, I think you won. You might not have won the primary, but you won the Pope, and that's a bigger deal. Well, thank you, man. Uh, you know, uh, the fact that you see things differently than a lot of folks who hang out in D.C. doesn't surprise me, given where you came from. I mean, your background is fascinating. You grew up in Tennessee, and then you wound up going to law school in New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, that must have been some kind of crazy culture shock. I could not understand 20% of the words that my fellow students were using in casual conversation. You know, they say, oh, well, you seem to be here for egalitarian reasons. And what you're saying is paradigmatic. I said, what? What? I mean, I would have to ask them, what do you mean? Over and over and over again. And I had to tell them, I've never heard of Brown. I've never heard of Princeton. I think I heard of Oxford. I thought it was in Boston. You guys think that the whole world revolves around you. Most people live their whole lives. We don't know. We've never heard of Andover. None of these places. And they're very smart people who are who are doing a brilliant job making America work every day. And we don't know anything about you. And I, you know, discovered in myself this view. And actually, you know, as my father, he said, look, you know, these kids are ahead of you. You know, they, 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 they know a lot of stuff you don't know, but they know it for only one reason. They've read a lot of books and they've had a lot of conversations you haven't had yet. You can read those books. You can have those conversations. You can know what they know, but they will never know what you know. They will never, ever know what you know because, you know, where you've grown up, where you're from, what you've seen, they're never going to see that. And so once you catch them, you're going to be fine. This reminds me of the book Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which sure. I'm sure you read. Another yellow. Uh, yeah, and it's the, the other version of this where it's the guy from Appalachia uh, was in the military went to, I believe it was Ohio State, and then went to Yale Law and also had that fish-out-of-water culture shock. What the heck is going on? Yeah. Why is there so much silverware? <laughs> Who are you people? 
why do you have, (laughs) you know, it's like, in his case too, it was like, why does the fact that I was in the military make you think like all these strange things about me that like many of which are not, uh, you know, wholeheartedly positive. And, and there was like that culture shock confusion between, you know, the way the vast majority of people live, which the vast majority of people live in the way that you did in Tennessee or the way that JD Vance did in Ohio. Like, you know, they're not hanging out at, at yeah. like the, like the Yale auditoriums. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing about it was I was used to people ha- having to earn their way. I mean, you know, you show up and you got to work your butt off the first day of class. We're in the auditorium. The Dean comes out and he starts talking about how, you know, among you, will be senators among you will be supreme court justices among you may be a president of the united states i'm like we don't even know where the restrooms are sir like nobody here has proven shit so i don't know why but you know it, it was shocking to me the level of just assu- assumption of privilege and entitlement if you pass these tests and got enrolled here you're going to run the country and you know by the way a couple of my classmates are in the u.s and well, classmates class schoolmates are in the u.s senate right now and um, a couple ran for president. So listen, uh, he, he was right and I was wrong. But I think for ordinary, what I'm so glad about, and you, know, you seem to have some of this as well, if you talk to enough regular people, it puts all that stuff in perspective. It's a very small group of people that all went to the same schools and know each other and, and have the same kind of blind spots that have way too much power, at least positionally, in the country. And well, the you- fact that that dude was right... <laughs> you know, factually years and years later, is that even a good thing? No, that you could like make that presumption and be like, well, someone <laughs> here is going to be a senator. It's like, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> that makes you like one yeah. of the people that that's yeah. going to be qualified to make our nation's decisions. Yeah. You pass uh, some tests. And- you, you wrote some papers, you pass some tests, you got accepted to a fancy school. That really should be, you know, at best the starting point. Um, but you know, it was, it wasn't. And, and that's why I think what your movement is, is, is doing is about is so important. You know, when you have this much concentration of not just power, but, but access and privilege and standing at such a small, tiny number of hands at the very, very top, you're going to have rebellions at the bottom. Now, it may be right wing populisms, you know, saying we hate the immigrants. It could be left wing populism saying, you know, we hate the billionaires. But you're going to have a, a, a rebellion. The question is. Can you have a positive populism? Can you have a populism that says, hey, let's empower everybody, let's respect everybody, but we don't have to disrespect or hate anybody to be a part of it. And really through in the Western world, your movement is that positive populism that I was looking for. I was like, this guy is able to point out the real pain of what's going on for people, but he doesn't have to demonize anybody. He said, listen, the system is, 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 is malfunctioning. We need to redesign it. So it includes more people and it, and it accounts for the real threats, which are, you know, robots and, and artificial intelligence, all this other stuff is not even a part of the conversation. So, look, I just think you did the country a great favor. I think you're at the very beginning of, you know, I mean, both parties stealing all your ideas and that kind of stuff. But the reality is that the people are not wrong. The establishment. Yeah, the people are not wrong. Yeah. The people are actually really freaking smart. Yeah. They look up and be like, hey, things are not working. The things you're talking about have nothing to do with anything in my life. Yeah. Why are you having the same stupid food fights about nonsense that none, no one I know cares about? Like the, the anger is just growing because yeah. the, of the disconnect. And, and listen, uh, 
And and, and the thing that, that I, I started recognizing, okay, Obama, to the, to, to the establishment, Obama came out of nowhere and just shocked everybody. Oh, Hillary Clinton's going to win. I was like, Hillary Clinton's not going to win nothing. And then out of and then here comes a Tea Party out of nowhere. Oh my God, we were so shocked to see the Tea Party. And then it was Occupy Wall Street. These guys came out of nowhere. And then it was Black Lives Matter. These guys came out of nowhere. I said, maybe nowhere is a lot bigger than you think it is. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe nowhere is the vast majority of people. Maybe nowhere is everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, these people are coming out of everywhere. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but you know, it just even that kind of you know, that language, it just lets you know where, who they think matters and who they think counts. If you, if you read the New York Times, you listen to NPR, and you pay attention to CNN and MSNBC, then, you know, you are smart. If you eat at Waffle House, you know, if you get your news, you know, through your church networks and, and that kind of stuff, if you went to public schools, then you're dumb. But those are the people who keep driving these movements that keep knocking them on their butts. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I want to say two things uh, that are like that. I just want, you know, I think are really interesting. There is... First, I'm going to relate my equivalent to your law school experience, which was like very, very different yet the same. Uh, and so let me explain that. So my parents immigrated here from Taiwan uh, and they arrived here as graduate students at Berkeley. So then they met, had me, my brother, and I ended up at a fancy law school really just on the basis of the fact that I was good at tests. And so I, like, so I showed up and then everyone was like, you guys are going to go do something. And I'm like, all right, we haven't done shit to deserve that. <laughs> and, and I was a kid who actually went straight from college to law school. So I was literally 21, yeah, 22 showing up. And then I get a six figure job offer from a law firm because, you know, you're uh, I mean, like, you know, I was top of my class, uh, you know, at. at in law school, but it, you don't need to be top of the class. It's like, you know, you're the average student there. You're getting like a, a job offer at the same level. 
And it shocked me because I was like, wait a minute. I'm like 20 at the time. I was like 23, 24. My dad has a PhD in physics from Berkeley, generated dozens of patents. And I'm all of a sudden making more than him. Wow. Despite the fact that like he's like one million times more productive uh, than I am. And then I saw the nature of the work I was doing at the firm and I was like a barnacle on these transactions, you know, it was like, they're, they're just like looking like, yeah, I was like, like this transaction cost, like a spot of grease. (laughs) It's like pay the spot of grease, you know, $140,000 to just like lubricate. And, and, and it just seemed so messed up and wrong. And I was like, you know, like I'm cool with making money, but I should have done something to deserve it other than get my hand stamped. It's mm-hmm. like, let, let me yeah. try and build something. Let me start a business. And so I left to start a business that failed. And then I ended up, you know, trying to learn and get better. But I, I arrived at that sense of that auditorium of entitlement from like a different angle Thank and then you. recoiled from it in a different way. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, I think a lot of, you know, what's missing for the leadership class and listen, I, and I don't mean to sound like ungrateful or arrogant. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't trade my life for anything. I, the things I've got a chance to do and, you know, working for Obama, working for Prince, you know, teaching at Princeton, you know, I've got a chance to do a bunch of cool stuff. Um, I just never believed the hype that I was somehow radically smarter than the people working in the cafeteria or radically smarter than the security, guard, you know, security guards. Um, I felt like I was radically luckier. Um, and, uh, no, not- or, or it's, it's like a particular narrow form of intelligence too. Yes. It's like, we've got a lot of fucking dumb, smart people in this country. You know what I mean? And a disproportionate number of them worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016. I just call them data dummies. I mean, they were, they were really, really smart and really, really dumb at the same time. And when people like myself, who, I mean, I was going out, I was talking to people in Pennsylvania, I was talking to people in Michigan, I was talking to people in the Rust Belt, and I would go talk to these guys, and I would say, listen, you got a bunch of problems here. Number one, uh, people don't like your candidate. They just don't. Uh, but number two, the African-American community is not getting the same kind of support at the grassroots that Obama gave. And so I talked to this black preacher after it was over, and I said, well, you know, the, you know, the data showed that black people were going to come out for Hillary Clinton in very large numbers, he said, data, data don't vote. Data don't vote. People vote. And if you don't put money in the grassroots and help people turn that vote out, data's not going to save you. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I think you see. Yes, we need data, but we also need wisdom. We got a society now, we got a, a super abundance of data and very little wisdom at the top. Uh, no, so there, there is a article I read that I found fascinating. There was this really, really bright kid he was in Texas and he got into some Ivy League school and was set to go and then was not able to go because of his immigration status. Like there, there was like a problem, uh, you know, in the uh, Trump era, I believe. And so he started working at Walmart and retail. Uh, and then so he's 18, 18, working in Walmart. And then fast forward a few years, he ended up becoming like an organizer of the people in that community and like it's now like a spokesperson, like leading people that are like twice his age and, and the rest of this. That's great. And what, what hit me about the story, Van, was like, I feel like our elite educational systems actually sucking people like that up into it 
So let's say that kid, instead of working at Walmart and then ending up becoming a labor organizer in Texas, got into Yale. Right. Like, and then after Yale, what's he going to do? He's going to become a management consultant or investment banker or like uh, maybe right now he might work at a tech company or something. Is he going to go back to rural Texas and become like an organizer? No. Probably not. Uh, and and so to me, there, there's been this relationship where we're acculturating people with certain qualities into this system of institutions that really doesn't change a damn thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is one reason why Pete Buttigieg is getting beaten up for working at McKinsey after Harvard. It's like, like people who don't understand, it's like freaking like every Harvard grad worked at McKinsey. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's so, it's, so for Pete to be like, what the heck is going on? I know. It's like uh, McKinsey, yeah. also known as the fourth and fifth year at Harvard. <laughs> so, um, but, but then, you know, from the outside looking in, you're like, wait a minute, like McKinsey's like the, the temple of optimization for like these firms. And then there's this instinct that you understand that that optimization does not end up benefiting everyday men and women, like workers very much. Uh, And there's an increasing understanding that our system of elite institutions also does not benefit like the, the everyday uh, mom, dad, uh, kid, family worker. But, you know, it's like, like the, all of our institutions are designed to make, things more efficient uh and there's this mistaken notion that it's like oh if you make things more efficient then people will benefit it's like well actually if you make some of these organizations more efficient they're gonna fire tens hundreds of thousands of people and maybe that's not great for them like maybe that their factory closing their factory getting automated their main street stores getting closed for amazon like maybe that's not great like even if they can get some stuff cheaper online no we're hyper efficient at some things and woefully inefficient at other things that are much, much more important. I mean, it's one reason why I ran for president is that I realized that the biggest problems were non-market based problems. Like if you're trying to deliver an app to my smartphone, that's really, really efficient Mm -hmm. because there's money involved and there are firms that are like, Ooh, like I'm going to try and make as much money as possible of that. If it's, how to care for grandma, how to make our kids strong and healthy, how to heal the planet. Mm-hmm. Those things are not market based they're not market based problems and they're incredibly unfortunately right now not even like on the radar or and and the the thing I was saying on the trail all the time is like look, you have record high GDP profitability of firms, capital efficiency and you also have record high Suicide, despair, financial insecurity, depression, anxiety, drug abuse and and overdoses, record low levels of uh, business formation among young people, uh, marriage and and child bearing, if if you see those as signs of societal health, which I happen to. Uh, and, And so it's like, so we're really efficient at a certain set of activities that have increasingly a negative relationship with how we're doing, you know? And and so like, if you stay on that trail, like where, where the heck does it lead? And to, to me, the opportunity through of this virus is to advance bigger solutions because of what you just described, Van, where, you know, people are at home and hopefully able to reflect on, frankly, the ridiculousness of a lot of 
the structures and incentives we follow every day where everyone's just been trained to say it's like, you know, you're an input into the machine. And if you're breaking, that's your fault. It's not anyone else's fault. It's like, sure, we're all stressed out, but, you know, embrace the grind or like, keep doing it. Uh, hopefully there will be uh, a giant rebuilding process that follows uh, this crisis when we all emerge. And certainly I want to be part of that. I know you want to be part of that. We've actually had conversations about that before this one, about what the heck yeah. the rebuild looks like. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Well, one of the things that we had a conversation about is that when we were talking about like establishment, non-establishment, and you were like, look, by virtue of just sitting in this room with these TV cameras on, like we're all establishment, like yep. there's no way to avoid it. And, and I know that for me, that was something that was uh, like new or a bit of a, a struggle. Because to me, it's like, look, if I have an opportunity to get my ideas out there to the American people in a way that helps normalize them. Like that's a win. Um, but you and I both know that there are many Americans who mistrust anyone who's near the levers or part of the establishment. Uh, and there, there's like this real resistance mm -hmm. that in some ways I really understand because it's like, like would I trust these people? Well, shit, like things have been going pretty poorly for me and mine for a long ass time. And as soon as someone's interests seem to be in preserving the status quo and not shaking the, the boat too much, like, you know, maybe I need to look elsewhere. So I actually completely get that. Um, while also in my mind, it's like it, it's a an absolute good to try and acclimate Americans to my perspective or really just my face and voice, because we have a freaking president now in the White House 
that just got there through being familiar to Americans or being a celebrity, being like, you're fired, all that, that apprentice bullshit. (laughs) So people don't understand. Listen, I, I understand like there, there's a, um, in everything you have like the purists and the pragmatists and, you know, even, you know, in skateboarding culture, it's like, oh, you're not really down, you know, like, you like, you know, in hip hop, you're not, you ain't really no hip hop hit. So in every culture or subculture you have the purist versus the 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 pragmatist but i think what people have to understand is that the time scale that we have to move if we're going to avoid an ecological catastrophe if we're going to preserve democracy if we're going to have any kind of shot at a social you know remotely fair i mean remotely fair social order is very short i mean we don't very short we don't have 30 years to sort this out we do not have a a lot of time at all and so and and the thing that I, you know, I try to explain to people is fame is a hack for time. Fame is a hack for time. If I have to sit up here and explain to you, well, I know this woman, she's a very good person. She's, you know, very beautiful. She's married to a hip hop person. Uh, she's, you know, a good entrepreneur. She, if I could just say Kardashian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It took me three seconds and then I can move on with the conversation. So being well-known in, in an economy that's where basically time and attention are the biggest com- commodities, like the most precious thing. You know, money, there's a lot of money. You can't get it to it half the time. You've got tons of money. Even rich people, though, are time poor. The richest people in the world are some of the most time poor. And so if you, you have to deal with that condition of the digital civilization you live in, and fame is just a hack for time. So I can now say Yang Gang on a subway and everybody knows what I'm talking about. And that's, for me, useful. Um, the more people who know about you, the easier my job is because I'm trying to promote positive solutions. And yet there's this you know, worship of attention and celebrity and also an understandable fear of it because it can be corrupting. It can be isolating. It does make, you know, my life is very different now that I'm a relatively well-known person, at least among news nerds, than it was before. Um, you know, uh, and so yes, it, 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 there's a danger there, but the bigger danger is that people with great ideas never get heard because we are only willing to speak, you know, to our own small Twitter followings and, and our own Facebook groups. And we're just afraid to walk out on that big stage. And I think that, Hey, listen, if you create a situation where there's some, you know, younger, fresher, more edgy, less, you know, CNN ready voices but are still in harmony then the movement continues to grow even if some people are more disaffected with you but like other people who are like you who are just maybe a little bit more you know um you know grassroots Uh, but listen i don't think that people like you can afford to keep your light under a bushel i think you know people like you who've got a, a big heart and a big brain and a good message and good values we need you to have more attention bigger platforms the people who are the assholes, the people who are really, I mean, there are people in this world who are really just out for themselves or who really just don't care or who are actually just mean, those people never shrink from the opportunity to grab the microphone. And so therefore, I think it's important for other people to have an equal and fair shot. Yeah, to me, we just need to get the job done and whatever tools come my way to get the job done, like I'm all for. Like if, if someone who's been bashing me at a particular point in time then like comes around later i'm just like cool let's do it that's good. you know so like I don't really- i'm the same way you know when, when i left the obama white house under fire you know 
I had been such a radical firebrand in my 20s and 30s. Uh, I was considered a, a, a left-wing radical in the Bay Area. Now, you have to work hard to distinguish yourself <laughs> in the Bay Area as a left-winger, but I did it. But when the deal goes down and we had a chance to pass a criminal justice reform bill in uh, 2018, I worked hand-in-hand -hand with uh, Mark Holden from Coke Industries, hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with Jared Kushner, and stood in the Oval Office with Donald Trump when he signed the bill. And I'm literally an arm's length away from Mike Pence and we're giving each other the thumbs up because I'm like you, I just want to get it done. Like as tough as it was for me to get run out of the Obama White House, as awful as I felt I had been treated, when I left, I got another job and my life went on. And other people don't have jobs and don't have any you know, um, obvious shot. And so whether it's on the left, you know, so then I had people on the left attacking me for working with Trump. And I said, would you rather have Donald Trump for criminal justice reform or against it? Do you want Donald Trump to be out here saying, keep everybody in prison, keep everybody in prison? Is that going to make your life better? Or would you rather him say, you know what, now Republicans and Democrats can work together on this? Uh, I think it makes a lot better. Yeah, for on, this, on this one thing. On this one disagree thing. disagree on a million can, other things. We can fight on everything else, and we do. But on this one thing, you know, for people behind bars, nobody behind bars is mad that the president is now more on their they side. They just want out. Yeah, yeah. Out. It's like, it's a, yeah. You know, they don't care who's in the White House. They want to go home to their mom's house. So, you know, you just got, you know, a whole different, um, I think, approach uh, to politics um, and to, to life, you know, Andrew, that I think has just been a godsend. I think it's very you know, similar to mine. That's why I'm a part of the Yang Gang. Um, you know, let's put real people first. Let's get real stuff done. We can fight about some, you know, hey, let's, let's fight from nine to noon and then fight again from like one to five. But can from noon to one, we get something done? Like that's, that's all, I'm not, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm just saying just for one hour a day, can we actually get something done? And, um, you know, I think, I think if, if uh, more people have that attitude, we get a lot more stuff done. That, that's that's very profound, man. Yeah. That's very profound yeah. because one of the things I found frustrating about this realm is that there's this focus on appearance over substance or appearance over reality. And if you run a business, you're reality based all the time. You run an organization, you're reality based all the time. Uh, and I, I said uh, before that running for president's like an exercise in terrible leadership in many ways, because if you had a leader who was just running after TV cameras all the time being like, here's what I think, here's what I think. Like, you know, things are probably going very poorly for that person's company or organization. Uh, but there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying where there probably is actually some kind of balance, some middle ground. One of the ideas that I read that, struck me was uh was uh from Yuval Noah Harari where he talked about how everyone thinks that oh there are these people pulling the strings at the top um but really the problem is that no one even knows where the power went <laughs> like the power has disappeared and you get there and you're like where is the power where is the power and so when you're on the outside looking in it's very easy to imagine there is this a cabal or illuminati and like they're making all this stuff happen but to me the real danger is that just the entire machinery is so weak mm -hmm. that and we're seeing it right now when the pandemic's here it's like okay like let's get some checks out let's get some testing done let's, let's get, like try and support businesses in, in various ways let's get a mask and then you let's get some gloves and masks to nurses yeah let's get some gloves and masks to nurses something really basic uh, you know and and then you see we're struggling to do that 
eat every one of the things I just listed. And you're just like, okay, like, you know, why are we so lousy at doing things that seem like they should be relatively straightforward? Uh, and so that to me is really the concern is that we we have this, this set of deteriorating institutions and there are people who are part of these institutions that in many ways their interests are served by pretending like the institutions still work. Um, and the institutions have been getting weaker the whole time. People are looking around being like, I don't think this is working so well. And to the extent the institution even is supposed to help people, it turns out I'm not one of the helpees. <laughs> so now I'm increasingly hostile towards these <laughs> institutions. Uh, and, and so like th- that is actually to me the bigger set of concerns. Yeah. And we're seeing it right now. Like you look around and, and you're and, and to me, climate change is another very big example where clearly it's it's this massive world threatening species threatening problem and sure there are definitely corrupt corporate interests on the other end of it just trying to maximize their profits and saying you know what i'd rather not have to deal with regulation uh in these particular areas so that's definitely happening uh but the the problem really is that we don't have the the strength in our government to be able to one override those corporate interests, but to do all of these things that we all feel like we would need to do if we're going to preserve our planet for our kids, mm-hmm. um, the next generation. So well, I'm with you that, that the institutional mistrust in some ways is missing like the core problem, which is just that the institutions actually don't have the wherewithal, uh, to perform their functions. Well, it, I tell you what, having been, um, you know, inside of a bunch of white houses and, um, you know, like I said, I, I, you know, I went to a fancy law school. I was a fellow at MIT. I've, you know, there's, I've been on the, I've been a, a grassroots outsider, and I've also been a, a White House insider. Um, you know, I've been a target of the media. Now a part of the mainstream media. You know, I grew up in a red state. I've got educated in the, you know, blue coasts. I, I can tell, I tell people all the time. There's nobody driving the bus. There's nobody flying the plane. It, it, it's much worse than you think. You think that there's a bunch of mean people up there who know what they're doing and who are getting away with murder. There's a bunch of people up there who don't know what they're doing and are getting away with murder. That's much worse. It's not that they're mean. It's like they, they literally like it's just it's chaos. And so, uh, w- what that to me suggests, though, you know, once you once you pull the curtain back in the Wizard of Oz and you realize even the wizard that you thought had all this power is, you know, posturing. You do have to look within. And it turns out, you know, Dorothy had the slippers the whole time. Uh, it turns out that, you know, we had each other the whole time. Like the, the wisdom is out here. You know, the, the genius is out here. The power is out here. The power is in the hands of the powerless. Uh, it's the people who are not stuck in these systems and trying to you know, pretend like everything is cool. They have the ability to think new thoughts, try new things. You've seen all these mass movements come sweeping out of quote unquote nowhere um, battering the establishment the past 10 years. Um, I think the question is, you know, can you put the smart with the heart? You know, can you be, you know, have the data and the wisdom? Can you put the smart with the heart? And then can you put, you know, great ideas with great people so that you can actually start getting stuff done? You know, the the other thing that I'm concerned about really is the, the formation of what comes next is that if you have this discontent with our current structures, which I think you're right, people will have uh, to higher and higher degrees as a result of this time, 
the question really is how do you build the new structures mm. that would be superior mm. and that one's very, very hard. Yeah. I mean, like, like the the basic one staring at us is like we have this two party system. We have a government that has failed us in many respects, like during this time. And, and so, how do you build a new and better government? And that's something that people have been struggling with for decades. I certainly think that that is the project of this era, and that I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm into it, but I also know what that would mean. Like that, that, that would mean, uh, a political revolution that would mean different leaders with different outlooks and, and philosophies than the ones that we're currently getting. Uh, so I hope that very positive things come out of this era. Um, but no, I, I, I believe that it's going to be, uh, a really, really fraught, difficult, arduous process to to try and build something positive out of it. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, in some ways, the floor has been torn out from under us. Um, and that's where the, the, the fear comes and the scary part comes. And even politically, you know, democracy, a democratic republic is the hardest form of government to keep and the hardest one to establish. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the easiest one to lose and the hardest one to establish. And so, um, so in some ways, the floor has been torn out from under us. But also the ceiling has been torn out, off from over us. I don't think that a lot of people are going to be shocked if somebody comes forward and says, hey, we need a very different approach here. And so you know, we can fall or fly, you know, kind of based on our own efforts. And, you know, it's hard. It's easier to fall than to fly. But I do think that, you know, this- there's definitely going to be openness to more different stuff. Yeah. And, and like the the this. Most straightforward example is that there was the magical Asian man going around saying, everyone should get a thousand bucks a month. And then people were like, oh, that's impossible. Yeah. And then now tens of millions of people just got $1,200 literally today. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be like, oh, like actually yep. that was possible. It's like maybe we can start to think bigger. Hey, listen, I mean, your ideas were nowhere on the map uh, a year ago from, from the establishment's point of view. And now, you know, the president and the pope are both with you. That's pretty good for 12 months. And so who knows what the next 12 months will be. Could be bad, but yeah, could be really good too. It's time, brother. Yeah, like to me, universal basic income is the foundation of the floor. And then we have to build this glorious structure on top of it. And it's going to include a lot of things. Uh, but you and I are going to be there. Yeah, God willing. Both, both uh, making the plans for the structure and then God willing, building it. So thank you for being such an awesome friend and champion to me and the Yang gang before it was cool. You took a lot of heat, but like you said, like, you know, uh, you, you're not afraid of a fight. Nope. Uh, and it seems like you have a record of being way ahead of the curve. Um, so, well, look, I mean the, the two charitable organizations I'm most committed to there's reformalliance.com. Uh, we don't take a lot of donations, but we sure need people to sign up. So reformalliance.com. Uh, started by Jay-Z and Meek Mill and Robert Smith and Robert Kraft, a bunch of people, but reformalliance.com is important to me. Also, cut50.org, C-U-T, cut550.org, needs a lot of money, a lot of help. It's the biggest grassroots network in the country of bipartisan criminal justice reformers, people who've been you know, fighting to try from a bottom up, left and right together, trying to get prisons to be smaller and smarter. Um, uh, they need a lot of money right now because of this virus just tearing up the prisons. So cut50.org is the other place I care a lot about. 
Well, congratulations, man. Such awesome organizations and awesome work. Uh, we oh, definitely need more of it. Really appreciate the heck out of you, Van. And I, I learn from you every time. I took some time and I ventured into the comment section of Twitter the other day. And you guys have a lot of opinions about our podcast. So we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to answer your questions. Go ahead and just use the hashtag AskYangSpeaks for a question you'd like answered. And then we will hunt it down and answer them. Hopefully not all of them, but some of them. We might even devote a whole episode to it. That would be a lot of fun. That would be fun. So hashtag AskYangSpeaks. Do it on Twitter. Do it on Instagram. We'll try and find it too. We'll try and search and comb through all of it and pull up the good ones and make a good episode. Thanks, guys. 